This episode is sponsored by World History Encyclopedia, one of the top history websites on the internet. I love the fact they're not a wiki. Every article they publish is reviewed by the editorial team, not only for being accurate, but also for being interesting to read. The website is run as a non-profit organization, so you won't be bombarded by annoying ads and is completely free. It's a great site, and don't just take my word for it, they've been recommended by many academic institutions, including Oxford University. Go check them out at worldhistory.org, or follow the link in the episode description. In July 1952, some three million people gathered in the heart of the Argentine capital, Buenos Aires. They had come to pay their last respects to Eva Perón, the president's wife. Overcome by emotion, a frenzied crowd poured forward, leading to a crush in which eight people were killed and thousands injured. Despite the huge crowds, Eva Perón, or Evita as she was known, was a divisive figure and her death was a milestone in, rather than the end of, her political influence in Argentina. In this episode, I explore the story of Evita. Eva Perón was born in 1919 into the lowest social rung of Argentine society. She was a female in a patriarchal nation. She was illegitimate in a conservative Catholic country. And her mother was a pauper, shunned by society for being an unwed single parent. Despite her humble origins, Ava had big dreams. She ran away with a musician to Buenos Aires with the idea of being a movie actress. The relationship didn't last, but despite the odds, she forged a successful career for herself as an actress. Her life changed forever when at a fundraiser for earthquake victims, she met a widowed military veteran 20 years her senior. Juan Perón came from a wealthy family. He joined the military and spent time in Europe during the reign of Mussolini in Italy. On returning to Argentina, he was as a colonel in the army involved in a military coup that seized power in the country. His role as the head of the Labour Department was a minor one, but he cleverly enhanced his standing by bolstering the unions and promoting social reforms that benefited the workers. By the time of the 1944 earthquake, he was a major political figure. But while he had gained support from among the working classes, as a wealthy man, he lacked credibility. This was something Ava Perón, with her humble roots, provided. They soon married, and he became the popularly elected president. Perón thought that war between the West and the Soviets was inevitable, and he hoped to bolster the Argentine economy by staying out of any conflict, but profiting from it in the same kind of way the United States did in the early part of World War I. But it was a naive idea. His dislike of communism was well known. While America sanctioned Argentina, essentially for refusing to pick sides. He won favour in some quarters, for forming ties with the fledgling Israel and allowing more Jewish immigrants to come to Argentina than any other South American country. 
But conversely, due to the strong German community in Argentina and his own connections in Europe, he facilitated the escape of huge numbers of Nazi war criminals, including Adolf Eichmann. These pariahs were sought both by NATO and the Warsaw Pact countries, but were provided with a safe haven in Argentina. Politically, he used violence, censorship and repression to shut down his political opponents. His fascist connections meant that in 1947, Eva Peron was snubbed by King George VI of England during her tour of Europe. She was able to meet the Gaul of France and Pope Pius XII, but the only other major leaders who welcomed her were Franco and Salazar, the fascist dictators of Spain and Portugal, respectively. Dr. Margaret Schwartz, Associate Professor at Fordham University, is the author of Dead Matter, The Meaning of Iconic Corpses, a book in which she explores the importance of photography and media representations of the corpses of political figures such as Lenin and Eva Peron. She began our conversation by explaining the backdrop to the Perons' rise to power. At the turn of the 20th century, my family emigrated to the United States from Eastern Europe around 1900. At that point, Argentina and America were like equals in terms of their economic prowess on the global scene. And Argentina is a country that was considered in the first world and a wealthy part of the first world, really until after World War II. And I think that that's an important thing to realize in this Evita moment, because they're watching themselves sort of be gently ushered off of the world stage as a country. And they're watching themselves become part of the global South. This is a story that reaches all the way into the 2000s when they have the economic collapse of 2002. It's like, oh, no, we really, really are living in the third world now in a way. Buenos Aires is still a really modern city, but you had people lose the peso fell so fast that pe- and people couldn't get their money out of the bank. So you had people lose their entire savings. Cattle and grain were their big exports. They didn't modernize as fast as the United States did. So Eva Peron comes to prominence at a moment when they want some reason to be famous again. It's really important to remember. I mean, she was in some films, but she wasn't really a film actress. She was a radio actor and she was famous on the radio for a show where she played different women from history. It really is a story that's not dissimilar to some of the things that you might read about Europe in the mid 20th century, where these charismatic leaders are able to take power with a nascent mass media. And in this case, the medium really, really was radio. And so the sound of her voice as a figure who linked them emotionally to a movement that otherwise might have been hard to understand. Peron himself is not a very charismatic figure, but she had this at a moment when they were feeling themselves a little bit less than. And then suddenly they had this beautiful blonde creature who not only represented them on the world stage, but also was understood to be one of them from the perspective of the working class. It's a very modern moment. Suddenly she doing something that other people couldn't have done before that moment, which is project her image via a medium that did actually disembody her to an entire nation in a really intimate way, right? The radio comes into your home. This was a population that still would have been getting used to that a little bit. Not all of them, the more urban wealthy people probably had radio for a while. 
And Argentina was for many, many years after that, a center of cultural production in South America, as far as film and television and radio were concerned. In the 19th century, the newly unified Italy and also Germany became major world powers before going into a rapid decline for different reasons after World War I. Fascists in both countries then prompted an economic turnaround before obviously imperial ambitions, the horrors of the Holocaust and World War II brought both regimes down. After he spent time in Europe, specifically in Italy, was Perón simply trying to emulate what happened to turn these countries around economically in Argentina? Yes, Perón openly admired Mussolini. It is this economic turnaround plan based on a mobilization of the working class, but it is not a liberal plan to do that. You had to be in a labor union, you had to pay your dues. He decided who could make a union and who couldn't, but it was this kind of populism that was linked to yeah an attempt to economically bounce back quickly and become modern and relevant. During her husband's time in office, Ava Perón became a champion of women's rights, an advocate for the poor and the disabled. She was a hero among the masses of downtrodden and marginalized Argentines. But in 1950, she was found to be suffering from cancer. Her health rapidly declined. And on the 26th of July, 1952, she passed away. When Eva Perón died, they made this decision to embalm her body, which is fairly unusual. I mean, obviously we have Lenin and there's various Catholic saints who had this process done to them. Who or what led to the decision to embalm her? I think from a technical governmental level, it was a decision made by her husband. I think this was a pretty private decision, but it was also, she had been dying publicly for a long time. And so there was this cult of her death going on. There was a monument being planned for her and and things like that before she actually died. Although the monument never got built because of what ended up happening. To understand that, you have to understand a few things about Perenism and about her function within that ideology. Peronism is a populist movement, which is kind of a weird thing to realize because we think of it as sort of a fascist and we think of it as authoritarian and it was those things. But it was also a movement of workers. Peron made the unions and he forced you to join them, but those were the source of his power. Throughout his rise to power, he made use rhetorically of Eva Peron and specifically of her literal body as his bridge to the common working people. He was someone who came from that oligarchic class of wealth, you know, military landowner folks. And she was a woman who was born out of wedlock to a poor woman in the provinces. This is a big part of the mythology. But the reason why that's important and interesting with regard to her embalming is that he, in marrying her, he made her legitimate he gave her a name. She had never had Duarte is is supposedly her maiden name. That was the name of her father. Her father and her mother were never married. He legitimized her as a political entity. And then all of the iconography and the propaganda machine of Peronism really made very literal this notion of her as a bridge between Peron and his people. She had had the experience. She had personally been saved by Peron. And through her, he was saving all of the rest of them and redeeming all the rest of them from these sort of old hierarchies. So when that body starts to break down, there is a need, especially in a sort of 
modern secular regime, right? There was a lot of tension with the Catholic Church. It's a very old institution in Argentina. Argentina is not a country with a big indigenous population. It's like the United States in that that population was there's genocide very early on. So there's not a lot of, oh, okay, we're mixing Catholic beliefs with local belief. It was really a state institution for a long time. It was a sort of secular thing. And so the literal move to preserve the body was to make concrete that metaphor that this bridge between Peron and his people was never going to disappear, that it would always be there, and that the physicality of it was somehow central to it. Her status as a woman who had been redeemed by him and who had not, for example, had children, right? So that's metaphorically, they were all her children, that embalming the body seemed to be the move from an iconography's point of view. Peron was already on his last legs politically when she died. So she dies in 52 and he's out by 55. So it also may have been a sort of last ditch effort to really try and make her into a lasting figure. There were also moments in which Eva herself tried to insinuate herself more legitimately into the political process, right? To have a role other than this sort of metaphorical role where she found that she couldn't get the support within her own party to do that. It's at that moment, she gets women the vote, right? Like it's her initiative to get Argentine women the vote in the 50s, right? right? Like that's pretty late. She wants to be vice president. She wants to run with him. His own party won't give her the support to do that. And right at that time, she has a hysterectomy and it's made public that she's ill. And she gives this absolutely devastating speech from the hospital that basically says, I don't need any position. I am the embodiment of Peron and Peronism. And all of that rhetoric was already so powerful that it seemed like the thing to do to make her into a kind of a modern saint, which as you point out, there's a cultural reference point for that, the incorruptible body. And especially since all the people on the other side never stopped calling her a whore and a a tramp, the battleground was always the body. If you want to think about what then happens in the 70s, the children being raised with this iconography, who are going to continue to grow up in quite a secular society, that sainthood and that spiritual element of it is really, really powerful in a nation, like I said, that's already sort of primed for that. This did not make them super popular with the Catholic Church. The church was the reason, essentially, that Pidon loses power eventually, is that they just stopped supporting him. I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, but you look at how the body and her legacy figures in the militarism of the 60s and 70s, which are the children of that time growing up and into an understanding of this figure. It's very passionate and it's very sort of crusade He does the thing, but she brings it dignity and spirit, right? Like she is the meaningfulness. And I think for people moving on past this point and the sort of long tail of Peronism, you get a kind of He's a flawed figure. He's a guy who did a lot of bad stuff. She's a saint. You don't have to cope with her flaws in quite the same way, in part because of all the propaganda around her, but also in part because because she died very spectacularly and very young, and she didn't have time to make the kinds of mistakes that he made, nor was she given the political fiat to necessarily do that. When they had the revolution and the military took over, they made a conscious effort to try to sort of deep her own Argentina, as it were. At that point, with her body disappearing, how significant was that for her supporters? The whole thing is a really crazy story. Pedro Ara is the name of the embalmer. He has this wonderful book about the process. It's like 
incredibly vague how he does. Like, it's like, no, tell us like what you injected. And he's constantly sort of defending himself against his detractors. But he had embalmed the hands of a famous pianist in Spain. And this is why Perón called him. So he did a quick process, like immediately after she died, he was there waiting and, and immediately. So this was certainly planned. And then she's on display for, I think, about three months and people are filing past and stuff under a glass case. And there's condensation inside the glass. There's like all these sort of problems that they have to deal with. You just can't do a super embalming that's going to last in that short of time. So it actually took him many, many years. So when they come for the body, it's not buried or displayed anywhere. They set him up in the Ministry of Labor in a laboratory that was secret. She's in there having all these treatments done, essentially, so that she can be indefinitely displayed. And they come and they just take her. Nobody knows. At the moment that happens, I would not say that that's super important to the supporters because then, as you point out, there comes this period of cleansing. And so you can't say his name out loud. So that's 1955. But maybe even like 10 years later, you get, I don't know if you're familiar with the short story, the Rodolfo Walsh, Esa Mujer. So he was a journalist in the 60s in Argentina, and he was trying to find out what had happened to the body. And he's one of these sort of Peronist youth people. He eventually was killed by the death squads, although I think he was killed on the street. I think he ran and they shot him. He becomes probably the most public figure who's actively trying to, where is she? Where did she go? And there are all these stories and all these rumors that she was kept in the attic of the radio station in a box labeled, you know, radio equipment, right? Which may have happened that she was Morikunig. I don't know how you say that with an Argentine accent. And I don't know how you say that with the German accent either, but K-O-N-I-G, Kunig was the army official who was given charge of the body. And again, it was a state secret. So there are all these stories. And there's stories that every time they moved to the body, there would be a group of followers who would leave like candles and roses and they would know somehow. There was an army official who had the body in his house who ended up shooting his own wife who was pregnant because he thought she was an intruder trying to take the body. So there's this idea that there's this curse and this madness that comes with possessing the body. But it is still at that time a state secret of the highest order. This is not a political climate where ordinary people can be like, tell us where's it, right? It's not that at all. But there is a steadily growing sort of mythology and it culminates in President Adamburu decides, he says, do something with this. I don't want to know what it is. Put it in an envelope and on the occasion of my death, you can open that envelope. And so they take it and there's a, a special arrangement made with the Pope and they take her and they bury the body in Northern Italy under a, an assumed name. And nobody even within the army knows this, but people want to know. So the short story, Esa Mujer, is the barely fictionized story of the journalist Rodolfo Walsh going to Koenig's house and being like, where is she? And the colonel, as he portrays him, is driven mad by obsession and the curse has visited him as well. And people are coming to his house and there was a bomb set off in the hallway. And so there is this sense that there's a rising militancy that wants to know. He's trying to find out. He doesn't find out. But he just says, I buried her standing because she had balls, is what he says at the end. Porque era macho. This is a gaucho thing. You bury gauchos standing also the sense of not really resting. So that story is published. He gets aced shortly thereafter. And then you have really the rise of these Peronist youth groups, which are crucially being manipulated by Peron himself from exile in Spain. So he's sending the messages, he's encouraging them, and they really take her as the banner. And it's that late life dying militant Evita that is their person. But at that point, they literally kidnap 
Adamburu shoot him because he won't tell them where the body is. And he's like, no, I literally, I don't know, right? But they shoot him, they kill him. So at that point, the envelope is unsealed and they exhume her and they bring her to Peron in Spain. I don't think it's fair to say that immediately in 1955, people are like, wait, where was she? Because there's a lot of fear and a lot of repression. And this is an, a military coup in an already very militarized, very censored society. But as that generation that was sort of raised with her grows up, they become increasingly militant and increasingly fascinated. And the body becomes the sort of site where all of those desires are located, right? If we could get the body back, if we could find the body, then we could find something that was what we want Peronism to be today, which was much more as a youth movement, much more socialist, much more militant, much more progressive than anything Peron himself would have endorsed or did in fact endorse. Once Peron got the body back in Spain, by that point in time, he had remarried and him and his wife there would display her in the dining room. That just seems strange, macabre and peculiar without kind of getting into the gory details. Obviously, through the embalming process, they removed the blood and so forth. And with the fact that she'd been really ill before she died, assume they tried to make her look probably better than she yeah. did. Do you think that at a point, somehow her body almost became detached from the person and just became this object that they could happily have in the dining room when, you know, they have friends over? This is what I argue in the book, that the body itself becomes its own object with its own story and its own history. There are many really interesting works of Argentine literature in which the body figures in a way that has nothing to do with Eva. Evita vive en cada hotel organizado, which is about, about like the corpse of Evita comes back and she really is a prostitute, but she's like a friend of the sort of gay sex workers of that time. And so they, and they love her and she jokes around with them and they say like, oh, you could see the little stains from the cancer, like, but she's still looked great. Her death is its own character embodied by the corpse. So absolutely. I don't know that it's true that they always had it in the dining room. It is true that they had a sort of Rasputin type spiritual advisor, or she did, who alleged that if Isabel lay on the coffin, he could spiritually move the spirit of Eva Peron into her. And it is also true that when Peron comes back, he does make Isabel his vice president as a, a way of, well, it couldn't happen for Evita, but we're doing it for Isabel, which is why once he dies in office, he's on shaky ground. He's ruling and then he dies. I think she was 38-year-old former exotic dancer is the president of Argentina. And it's it's like 24 hours and the military is just like, no, ma'am. And there's a wonderful documentary about her that just came out, I think it was a couple of years ago, that is about the figure of Isabel de Perón, who is still alive and under kind of permanent house arrest. The position I always take, and I'm not a journalist, that a lot of that also was part of the mythology or part of the character of the corpse, the story. If you read Esa Mujer, he's like, that horrible Spaniard, he was obsessed with her and like sort of alleging that all these sexual things happened with the body when he was embalming her. There is a sense that whoever has the body is tainted by it in some way. And so that macabre, awful things, unnatural things are happening around it. Peron's own relationship to the body doesn't form as big a part of the mythology as Isabel's does. There are some disturbing stories about Isabella's handling of the body. The story goes, and this one I choose to believe because it's just so poignant. When she was exhumed, her feet were all messed up. Like she had perhaps been in a box propped up so that the feet were sort of split and the hair 
pins in her hair were rusted and the hair was wet and mildewed. And the story goes that Isabel herself dressed the hair of the corpse, that she combed it and pulled out the crumbling hairpins. And yeah, that one I'm like, yep, who knows? But I want to believe because it's so creepy. The same year that Perón died, the Peronist militant group, Monteneros, exhumed the body of Pedro Aramburu, the general they'd murdered four years earlier, in part because of his refusal to divulge the whereabouts of Eva Perón's corpse. They keep the body and they say, we will return the body of Aramburu when you return the body of Eva Perón. Isabella Perón oversaw the return of Eva's body. And initially, she was buried alongside her late husband, Juan Perón. With man and wife both dead and buried, you might reasonably expect the story of Evita to end there. Were the military government concerned that even with her husband dead, that somehow Ava Perón's body could be a lightning rod for their supporters and there was a danger that somebody might steal the body and try and use it as some kind of political tool? I mean, the reason that the body was originally taken when the military, when the, that coup in 1955, when they first take the body, it's because she's like the most powerful piece of Peronist propaganda that there is. And they want to stamp out all that stuff. This also fascinates me. I'm not a religious person. So there's a really easy way to get rid of that body. And that's to torch it. Like it would just be a pile of ashes. And nobody can do that. Nobody can even think about doing that. That just seems like such an abomination, I guess, from a Catholic perspective. They can't do that. They won't do that. And they're afraid to bury it because they're afraid that people will find out where it is and that that will become a site of pilgrimage. So there's fear that the body will be exhumed and become a sort of rallying point. They do bury her with Perón and he's buried in Chacarita, which is the poor people's cemetery from the yellow fever times. And then eventually she's brought later after the dictatorship to the Recoleta, which is the fancy cemetery. It's not, people think it's the family tomb. It's totally not. They just made up a tomb that said Duarte on it, which is not her family name, right? Which I, I think is, again, sort of perfect. Like she's not buried under a name that ever belonged to her. Because if they made the Eva Peron tomb, you know, there's still this fear of what that could unleash, really from both sides of the political spectrum, I would say, in a country really craving stability at this point. She is buried, I think it's like five doors. It's like bomb shelter level the Kirchners are Peronists. The Peronist party exists still. So you do see now more commemorative iconography. There's a statue of her near the Biblioteca Nacional. There are, I think, murals of her on the Ministry of Labor building. She's a very divisive figure still. And yeah, it's like nobody wants to open that can of worms, but nobody is also willing to just destroy the worms. I think if they had done it, they would have had to do it secretly a long time ago. And now that they just have this thing, what are you going to do with it? In April, I delve further into South America's recent history as I talked to Professor Kristen Sorensen of the University of Bentley about the notorious regime of Pinochet in Chile. And in the next episode... I cross the Pacific and talk to Dr. Ian Hodges and explore the groundbreaking rule of King Narai of Siam.